Good day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Emma LeBlanc, who is doing a PhD in Biomedical and Molecular Sciences under the supervision of Dr. Shay Colpitz. Welcome to Grad Chat, Emma. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Now, I've had, I reached out to a few of you recently, and luckily, you all said yes to coming onto the show, so I'm very excited about that. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring Emma on, not just to talk about her research, which you are all going to find fascinating, but also she's one of our students who has recently received the Vanier Scholarship, which was a big deal here in Canada to get a Vanier Scholarship, and it certainly does help our students be able to concentrate on their work as opposed to thinking about, you know, paying for the next meal or anything. So first of all, congratulations. That's awesome. What does it mean to you receiving a grant like this for both you personally, but also for your work? Great. Yeah, thank you. And as you say, obviously, financially, it helps a lot. But I feel like one of the biggest things is it really tells you you're on the right track. I feel like PhDs have lots of ups and downs. And so it's, it's nice to have recognition for your work and also be encouraged that you can, um, as you say, not only focus on it, but also be able to ride out those ups and downs and, and take a bit more risk because you feel like, okay, you're on the right track. Now you can explore more. You're, you know, you're given the tools, both resource financially and even just confidence wise to, to move forward with your research. So that's how I feel personally about it. So I think it's very exciting for that reason. And I think for my research, it, I mean, it just doesn't only benefit me, it helps like my whole team um, in terms of the right. research that we're doing. And so, yeah, I look forward to talking to you more about my research. Um, Which we will get to that. But first of all, why did you want to do research in the biomedical and molecular sciences field? Because it's, I mean, it's uh, a huge field, let's face it. Yeah. I mean, there's five different departments, so to speak, under this umbrella. Yes. So I knew I wanted to do microbiology towards the end of my undergraduate degree. So I did pharmacology uh, at McGill University. And I like kind of the drug development side of things. And my first lab, my first like summer of research, I already thought like, this is my dream job. It was in a medicinal chemistry lab. And it was on designing antibiotics, let's say. So it was designing this kind of new era of antibiotics that would help the immune system fight off bacteria. That, that was the premise. And, and I loved it. And I did actually very much the organic chemistry side of things. And then I had one lab mate who was doing the microbiology side of things. And I don't know why I thought, hey, I want to do that. I, don't, I just knew that that was the side I wanted to be on. So I went to the University of Toronto to do my master's. And that was in the molecular genetics department. Also a huge department, lots of fields of research. But my field was actually antifungal drug development. <laughs> so oh. very neat. And I loved it. And it was actually while I was there that I realized I wanted to be a clinician scientist. And that eventually is what brought me to Queen's. And actually at my interview, I met with... Um, kind of one of the graduate coordinators in the department, and she recommended Dr. Shea Colpitz to me. And I right. reached out. We had a great project. We were on board, and here I am. <laughs> That's fate, then, isn't it? It was meant to be. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And I'm 
Yeah, and, and I think what was interesting that you brought up too, I mean, you've had lots of opportunities to work on different fields Yeah. Um, to see if actually you, you like it because that's one of the problems sometimes. People think, yeah, this is this is it. And then they go, oh, no, I really don't like it. Now what? But you've not had an opportunity to figure things out and still progress as, as, as you go along. Absolutely. And, and I still got surprised. I, I knew I wanted to do microbiology. I thought I was going to do bacteria. I ended up talking to Dr. Colpitz. I'm now in virology and I love it more than I was expecting. So <laughs> you never know. A total win-win. So that's great for Dr. Colpitz, but also yeah. for you too. So, so that's fantastic. So with that, so your research topic is called Conserved Mechanisms of Coronavirus Attachment to Cell Surfaces. Now, most people go, okay, oh, I just thought we'd going to talk about coronavirus, but clearly there's a lot more to it, which is true. And we all know, like, for, th- for instance, what's been happening in you know, COVID-19, there's been multiple strains or mutations of the COVID-19 coronavirus, because it's one coronavirus, if I've got that correct. It's been really difficult to stop it. Uh, and then, you know, just think when you're getting on top of it, there's another strain, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, clearly finding ways to inhibit the infection in the first place would help enormously, which is if I've understood it correctly, this is where your research comes in. But firstly, what is a coronavirus and how do people get it? So let's go back to square one of what is a coronavirus? Sure. Yeah, there's actually, you know, other coronaviruses other than the one that causes COVID-19, as you've described. So there's actually seven known human coronaviruses and actually about a third of common colds are caused by coronaviruses as well. Oh, so there's some, is that right? Yeah. So we call them common cold coronaviruses and then we call them highly pathogenic coronaviruses, the ones that are very infected. So four of them are common cold ones. Some of them have been around for a long time, like 100 years, and some of them are actually newer ones that get discovered later somehow. And then, as we know, the highly pathogenic ones, so that's SARS from, you know, 2003, Mm -hmm. MERS 2014-ish, and then then SARS-CoV-2, the new one. So, you know, as you say, SARS-CoV-2 is not not new. There's other coronaviruses, but there's concern when they're becoming highly pathogenic is the main concern. So just in broad terms, as you say, they're they're respiratory viruses, which is, you know, concerned because of the way they spread. And yeah, we can talk a little bit more about their mechanisms of entry, which is what I study. And if I've got this correct, a lot of them, when it starts infecting humans, it's because of contact with something that bats have been involved in along the way. So coronaviruses are what we call like zoonotic viruses. So they usually come from an animal reservoir. That's where the zoonotic term comes from. Right. Um, so some, many of them come from bats. So as you know, SARS as well, like the first one and SARS-2 is, is thought, believed to come from a bat. And then often they'll go through an intermediate host. But some of like one of the common cold coronaviruses, it's thought before humans, it was actually in, in cows. So <laughs> there's different, oh. there's different animal hosts. But often, right. uh, as you say, there's, there's this jump that eventually goes from animals to to humans that that happens and that might continue to happen and that's why we're studying this right glad you're still studying them (laughs) in a big way so let's talk about your research then so you know sometimes when I talk to students in sort of your fields we have to be and even like engineering that we have to sometimes be very careful with intellectual property so if there's any st- anything you can't talk about totally understandable because you're in the early stages of your your work so I'll leave that to you to decide what you can disclose and what you can't okay. but can you give us a, a, a sort of a general overview first of all of what you're trying to do in your research so I'm sure as you say it's very topical people are talking about coronaviruses and 
people have likely seen pictures and one of the things people talk about is that spike protein and that's where you know, <laughs> variations are happening. So I'm sure people hopefully understand. So the, the spike protein is what's important for interacting with the cell and then entering the cell. So that's kind of that okay. tool that it uses to attach to a cell and then, and then enter the cell. And so different coronaviruses have slightly different spike proteins and interact with slightly different things on cell surfaces. But we're trying to think of what's conserved between different coronaviruses. So the thought there's, as you say, even with SARS-CoV-2, there's different variants that are emerging. But even let's say there's another one. There's another one that comes from bats in 10 years, 20 years, you know, we're going to need a new vaccine developed. And, and, you know, we've been really lucky to get one in a year and a a half. But that still, you know, clearly wasn't fast enough, right? Like, as we've seen, that's too late. So the whole topic of my research is, can we design an antiviral that'll be broad spectrum that we can design now. And then when the next one emerges, we have it already. We can start taking it while we're working on a vaccine. Right. And so the, what we're looking at is, is how, how are we going to design something that's broad spectrum? Well, we need to design something that's going to prevent any coronavirus from infecting a cell. Not easy. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, let's start small or should we just start big? <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea here is that it's interesting. So if you, you have to imagine these viruses, you know, floating around and then they have to be able to recognize what is a cell to then interact with it and enter it. Right. So evolutionary, it makes sense that they're recognizing cells in a very similar way. So that, that's kind of our theory that we're starting with, that cells have a, a surface that will be recognized by viruses in a similar way. And then once they kind of adhere or attach to the surface, then they can interact with their specific way of entering. So as we know, like, you know, influenza might have a receptor that's different than SARS-CoV-2, which might be different than another coronavirus. But right. h- how are they recognizing the cell and, and what's common between them so that we can block that? So that's the target of my research. So it's trying to inhibit them attaching in the first place? Exactly. Okay. Not easy. Not easy at all. Because I was looking at your little synopsis that you gave me and I sort of highlighted certain areas like the current outbreak is the third emergence of a highly pathogenic coronavirus and likelihood of future spillovers into human populations. So we're going to get other ones. So we're not out of, of out of the woods yet. You know, current vaccine development, as you mentioned, takes 12 to 18 months in best case scenarios. And the only reason we got it this quickly is because the whole world worked on it together. Yes. In my opinion, of course. So clearly we need, as, as you said here, alternative strategies to figure out how can we stop this. And you use a word here of alternative strategies such as the development of broad spectrum antiviral prophylactics. What's a prophylactic? So the prophylactic would be a prevention mechanism. So it'd be a prevention antiviral as opposed to a treatment one. Um, So the concept there might sound a little bit different than what we normally think for antivirals, but it's not completely um, out of left field. So it's very similar to taking malaria pills if you're going to go to a region that has malaria, like I didn't do that for traveling purposes. So that would be the similar analogy, if you would. And I think actually, even with viruses, I don't know if everyone's familiar with PrEP. It's like a pill that you can take to prevent HIV if you're in a high-risk population. That's kind of the idea here for a prophylactic. We're thinking if we can design something that people who are high-risk can take to prevent a coronavirus infection, let's say in an outbreak situation for healthcare workers or long-term care residents. So that, that's the idea of the prophylactic in our, in our So is it similar to the fact we some of us are now getting the flu jab? Exactly. So the, the, the main difference is because it would be likely a, maybe an oral pill or even a spray or that kind of thing, um, it'd be different than, than a one-time jab. But the thought of it is that the vaccines are actually quite specific. So that's where you have to get a flu vaccine every year because... Every year. 
even for the flu, there's different strains, as you were mentioning earlier. So they only work against a specific strain. So we're thinking, well, if, let's make a pill that can work against any coronavirus. That, that, well, that's yeah. the idea. <laughs> Which is why that broad spectrum thing comes in. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, if you can do that, that's great. Because I'm all for prevention rather than cure yes. type of things. But still not easy knowing that mutations happen are happening so quickly because even with the broad spectrum are you actually getting them all is going to going to be the question for you all down the track and then then you talked a little bit about you know you're saying that these viruses attach to human cells by interacting with complex carbohydrates called glycans so most people know with complex carbohydrates not maybe not knowing that they're called glycans <laughs> so is there a difference or you know is there anything else we need to know about that other than for me complex carbohydrates are some form of sugar yes that's exactly it so what's interesting is maybe people think of, well, people in life sciences will think of cells as being, you know, like a bag that has a, a lipid membrane, but that lipid membrane actually has quite a few proteins. And these proteins, especially the ones on cell surfaces, are actually covered with sugars. So they're actually coated with this like almost sugar coating. And we call those glycans when they're attached to proteins pretty much. So, And so these little viruses like the sugar, like yeah. we all do. We all love sugar. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why, likely at an evolutionary point of view, is that if you have all sorts of different proteins, but all having similar sugars on them, then it can recognize the sugars and that tells it it's on the cell surface. So if it recognizes sugars that are going to be abundantly on cell surfaces, that's a good anchor, if you will. That's so a good anchor. Oh, well, that would be good. That would be great. But you also talk about possibly using things like green tea and stuff like that. And we all know green tea is one of those areas that people have been looking into because they're great antioxidants and, and, and what have you. So is, is that why you, you're potentially looking at green tea? Great question. Yeah. So there, there's lots of described benefits, as you say, to compounds in green tea. And so there's one in particular that's been well described for having antiviral properties. So people were looking into this compound. So in brief, we'll call it EGCG. It has a long name, but we'll call it EGCG. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> described to inhibit many viruses. And so people have tried to figure out why. And one of the, the major reasons that's attributed to its activity is that it's able to prevent the virus from binding to these sugars on cell surfaces. So it's okay. thought that actually... It competes with the cell surface for binding to the virus. So if it can bind to the virus first, and then it can't bind to the cell surface. So that that's kind of the the reason that EGCG is thought to block a lot of viruses from infecting cells. So does that mean if something like that could work, you're not having to swallow a tablet, you just drink a cup of tea? <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. So I mean, there, there's actually quite a bit of EGCG in tea, but not enough to have this effect. But mostly what's oh. the problem is People have actually done clinical trials with actually like a pill of EGCG, so a concentrated compound of green tea. And the, the amount they use is equivalent to about a dozen cups of green tea. So that's not oh, too well, outrageous. But, but even then, you know what I mean? Like, so it's not a hundred, it's like maybe a dozen. But even if you take it as a pill, even if you take 12 cups, let's say, which I agree is ridiculous, but you know, not as crazy as you might think. But even <laughs> It's um, the problem with that compound is it doesn't accumulate in blood very well. So you, you can drink it, but your body won't really absorb it to a high extent. So right. in your blood where you're going to want to distribute it to the tissues that potentially are virus infected, it, it's nearly impossible to get to the levels that have antiviral activity. So it, it's not going to be the, the green tea, unfortunately, is not our smoking gun, but it's a good proof of concept. So if you were to isolate this and, and test on the cells, you can block the virus from infecting cells. It's just not realistic to use this for people. 
like you said, it's a proof of concept that if you could get something that could work like this, but it's a bit more efficient, exactly. you might have something else. So who, who figured that out in the first place for that proof of concept? A lot of this is Dr. Colpitt's PhD work, actually. As you say, green tea is very popular for a lot of properties and a lot of groups have been studying um, EGCG and a lot of groups had previously shown that it had antiviral activity. Um, and one of Dr. Colpitz's papers from her PhD really showed, you know, why, why is that? Why does it have this broad spectrum activity and show that it prevents viruses from binding to sugars on cells? Okay, so moving back to your work, though, because <laughs> we're doing very well for Dr. Colpitz here. Going back to your work as well, you sort of, you've written here, you aim to identify which subtypes of glycans are used by the SARS-CoV-2 and other coronavirus for entry infection to identify the target for an improved attachment inhibitor. So how are you going with that? Or should I ask some of these other questions like how would this work for antiviral prophylaxis to prevent infection? So as you just said, so now we have our proof of concept. How, how do we improve on that? So the idea is that these glycans are complex carbohydrates, as we said. So they're complex sugars. So the idea to, as you say, to, to get something that's more potent, more efficient at blocking this, well, we need to find out, well, what, what type of sugar is the virus binding to? And right. if we can know that, then we can design something that might be more effective at, at blocking that interaction. So that, that's the premise of, of the work. To do that, so that, that's the idea, is, is can we make it broad spectrum? So what I'm investigating is, is SARS, what, what sugar is SARS-CoV-2 binding to? What sugar are common cold coronaviruses binding to? What about MERS? What about the first SARS? So that's where my research right. is. Right. Oh, okay. So, so it could be great that if, if you can find out which sugar each of those things that you talked about is because then you can put something okay so for this one this could work but this one could be this this one could be this yes it'd be exactly. easier for all the same wouldn't it <laughs> that, that's exactly it so that it would be great if they're all the same and we're trying to find which one is the most conserved because then we can have something that'll be ready maybe for the next coronavirus if this, if this is pretty conserved then then the next one we could we could use this for even before we we know too much about it right it takes time to study these coronaviruses indeed <laughs> well you mentioned that you're actually doing some collaborations as well which is one of the things i love about research is when you can collaborate with other people either on campus or even across the world depending on what people are working on and you've mentioned here you're working with a carbohydrate chemist not just any old chemist a carbohydrate chemist to help you design what you're trying to do here so first of all how did you reach out to that chemist or was it just yes, a natural well, fit? And, and then what's been happening with that? I would say, well, we're lucky, as you say, it could be a local or international collaboration. So Dr. Cap Kioti, who's on one floor below us in the Waterall Hall, <laughs> is a specialist. So what we're doing is we're working together. So what I'm doing is I'm investigating which coronaviruses are binding to which sugars. And once we find that out in parallel, she's designing these glycan mimicking molecules that I test to see if they can prevent the infection from happening. So it's a great collaboration. We meet, uh, first we're meeting every two weeks. Now we're meeting about once a month um, to discuss our findings. And so her group is designing compounds and then I'm going to test them. So Love it. Love to be able to work with each other. So let's, let's have a look at, so what makes this strategy effective against different coronaviruses? Because we all know um, how quickly things change and you think, woohoo, we've, we've done it. And then another strain comes and you think, oh my goodness, can you not just stop and give us a chance to catch up? <laughs> yeah. So as we were talking about like with the flu or with, with coronaviruses, so there's different coronaviruses, as I said, there's like seven of them. And so some of them have different receptors to enter the cell 
But what they all have in common is they have to attach to the cell. So that, that's why I keep talking about why right. these lichens are important because that's what they're recognizing to attach to the cell surface. And what we're thinking is that is likely more conserved than their specific entry receptor. So we're targeting this attachment to cell surfaces. And that's where the prophylactic idea ties in. So once you get infection, then it's like it's too late. We need to prevent the attachment part, um, which is a conserved mechanism. So that's that's the strategy there. And and as you say, so is this going to work against many coronaviruses? Well, that's what we're investigating and we're gonna like I'm looking at what sugars they bind to, and then and then we're gonna test compounds and seeing can it block a, you know a spectrum of coronaviruses. So we have has this sort of idea been used for other things? I mean, because I know, for instance, with cancer, that I mean there's so many versions of cancer. Uh, it's not just one. It, there's lots of different versions, and I know in some of those labs, they're like you trying to find what, what, how can we stop something before it even attaches or mutates or be able, is able to go to the next level of going we gotcha so have you been able to find things that perhaps they've done to help you source what you're looking at you know so that's an interesting question and I think what's good about the question is you know there's what are you aiming for and what are you trying to avoid so what what we're learning you know from other groups too is is what's you know what's toxic for human cells so let's avoid that right so I think right. that's maybe more common in other fields, you know, what, what type of things to avoid, you know, and, and that's why inhibiting attachment is a really interesting strategy because you don't need to target the infected cell. You want to like target the virus before it infects the cell. Before. So that, that's a good safety profile and maybe of a prophylactic strategy where you, and also efficacy wise, right? It's harder to target something once it's inside a cell. It's harder to get the molecule there. So this strategy allows you to do that even before infection would occur and prevent it. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question, which I'm not sure is, is the right sort of question, but you talked about, you know, finding something that can go through the bloodstream that can actually get to your, to the, the cells themselves. And, and so the green tea, even though it's a nice idea, you'd have to have a lot of that flowing through to even get to what it needs to be doing. So so there's no other way of getting to the cells to sort of help? Or um, should it, yeah. does it always come through the bloodstream? As you say, it depends how easy you want the strategy to be. So uh, as we know, for vaccines or other medication, if it has to be through, uh, you know, uh, administration by a needle, you know, makes it a lot less practical, right? So you can go directly to the bloodstream if you have a needle. Um, right. But the idea would be something that would be a lot more easy to deploy would be something like a pill or even we've talked about even a spray that you could, administer directly to you know to, to your respiratory system right because that's the area we're looking at and if you do any of those things it's gonna have to go through the liver into the bloodstream so you you have right. to find something that's stable right well kind of makes sense too and we'll, is there anything else on the outside of the cell that we could be looking at other than the glycans or is it glycan city <laughs> no absolutely and, and we are we are looking at other things as well so there, there's other ways that, you know, viruses can recognize the cell surface. Glycans are highly abundant, so they're a really interesting target. And as you say, collaboration is also huge. So we're really at a great place where we're working with a carbohydrate chemist. So we now have the tools. So this is why we're really like gunning on, on this end. But it doesn't mean there's not other strategies for sure. Right. Well, sugars would be a good one because we know there's lots of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's all been fascinating for me. And I know I really generalize some of my my questions to you but thank you for for answering those so well and I know you've got a lot more to do and I guess 
The other thing is is important, which people may not have picked up when you started talking about, you know, your background and things. You are in the MD PhD program, right? Which is no mean feat whatsoever. So, for people who don't understand that, you're actually learning to be a medical doctor as well as a researcher, i.e., for the PhD, which is when you said you're a research clinician. I'm assuming now you're back into the research side because the way it works, you do so many uh, a year or so in the PhD, then a year or so yes, in the yes. MD, so and then you come of- back. Yes. How are you, you finding you that? I'm very at the early stages of this MD PhD program. So actually the way they do it at Queens is you start two years full time in your PhD. So I'm in the second year of my PhD right now. So next fall actually is when I start medical school. Then I kind of juggle both for a bit. Then I come back, finish my PhD, and then I enter the, the final years of medical school where you're in the hospital. Right. So yeah, so there's some back and forth, but that's the combined program I'm in and I'm really excited about it. Well, I'm glad you're excited. In one way, it's been nice to go and have a break from one of them for a couple of years and, th- and then come back. But what happens with your research when you go back to or to start the MD part? What happens with that? That's, that's a great question. <laughs> and people, people kind of balance it differently. So the, the good thing about starting with a PhD is that there's quite a learning curve, you know, in, in, in research. So I feel like now I've ramped up and now I am maybe better suited to juggle things a little bit. So to go back and right. forth a bit and do some weekend research and those kind of things. And at the same time, in the past year, I've been mentoring an undergraduate student in the lab. And so through mentoring, I can get the project to continue through through other people in the lab as well. So that that's kind of the Brilliant. idea. Brilliant. flow. Yeah. So you can um, still keep the data going, what you need. So when you exactly. do come back to finish off, the results are there for you to write up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. To, to polish and write up and then investigate further. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, no mean feat. And we have a lot of students here at Queen's that do the combined MD, PhD. And I take my hat off to all of you because it's it's a long haul. Yes. <laughs> and then, of course, I guess you've got residency when you finish both as well. That's um, right. So, as I say, you're a keener. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I've been told that, yeah. <laughs> but the main thing, as long as you're enjoying it, go for it and 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 kudos to you and that's great too that you got some funds to sort of help you along the way because that's a lot of education that you're doing so there's some other things that you do you've actually got time to do some extra curriculums (laughs) and one of the things here you're on the queen's varsity triathlon team awesome yeah i i love it so i i started triathlon in, in my first year of undergraduate studies and i absolutely loved it and i haven't stopped since so i you know, swim, bike, run almost every day. And then it's, it's really like, you know, you're talking about having breaks and this and that, and people like to spend their spare time doing various things. But I, I, there's nothing I love more than disconnecting a bit, going for a run, especially when it's social too and, and competitive too. But, you know, <laughs> but you know, I, I absolutely love it. So I'm, I'm happy that I get to keep doing it. At the same That's time. fantastic. I've done one triathlon in my life. Amazing. I did, did finish it. I was a bit disappointed I didn't get a prize. And I would have had I come last, but I was second last. Oh, no. But I did get over the line. So <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it's uh, funny because I was told in my first triathlon, I was told that if you finish, you're going to be addicted. And it was true for me. I don't know what happened to you. But <laughs> no. Well, put it this way. I probably should have trained for it. Yeah. <laughs> you should have known when I had to go and borrow someone's bike because I didn't have a bike. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
Yeah, but anyway, I moved it through and I had fun. Could have done with a beer along the way, but there wasn't any available at the time. But uh, (laughs) it would have been a lot of fun. So so good luck with that. I mean, that's great that you're doing that because that is a great way to sort of switch off from everything and and let some energy out, which is fantastic. And then one last thing, you recently co-chaired the Clinician Investigator Trainee Association of Canada annual meeting. Bit of a mouthful. How did you get involved in that? Yeah, so pretty much, as you say, so I'm in this MD, PhD program, this combined program, and, and right now I'm only really in the PhD years. I haven't started the medical school, but I wanted to get involved in, in kind of the community beyond Queen's. So there is, as you call it, it's, we call it CTAC for short, but it's the Clinician Investigator Training Association of Canada. There's an association with, a, you know, a board of directors, and then there's, there's two co-chairs for the annual conference. So I volunteered to be co-chair for that, and that was, ooh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. And but it was really great, you know, organizing it because you get to work with students as well as faculty, and it, so it's, you know, good for networking, as they say. But also, it was it was really great opportunity to get involved with the community that I'm going to be part of for the next, you know, five years. So that's um, good. That's yeah. good. It's always good to make those connections earlier rather than later because it's amazing, you know particularly in the kind of work that you're doing, you do need that support around you because you've got a lot of hard yards to do, as we say, you know, it's hard yakka. So you sort of need that support behind you. And and the more people, you know, makes it easy. And and hopefully you feel that you can help others as well along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, congratulations on everything, on the Vanier, on the fact you're doing MD, PhD and your actual research. It sounds fascinating. And I, I know there's going to be a lot of people be very interested in the results down the track, even though there's a lot of trial and error in that kind of research. But if nothing else, you'd be knocking off things like, no, that's not going to work. Let's try the next thing. Um, yeah. But hopefully it'll be more of the positive. Yes, it did work in this scenario <laughs> no that, that's exactly it and, and i'm really enjoying it so i'm happy to talk about it anytime <laughs> excellent well maybe you can come back on when you've <laughs> sort of come back towards the end and, and let us know how things are going so i do want to thank you very much emma for coming on the show and wish you best thank you so much for having me good one so that's it everyone a another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google Podcasts, spotify or stitcher just type in a grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.